You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. For joining us for this um, Brown lecture series. Tonight we're going to have a conversation about the book on Juneteenth, and I know it's going to be fascinating. I am Terry Freeman. I am the executive director of the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, and just pleased to be a part of this conversation this evening. Um, a lot has been made of Juneteenth this year, it seems, uh, more so than usual. Um, although many of us have been very aware of Juneteenth for many, many years uh, now, but to have this conversation is certainly a timely one. So I now want to introduce to you Vivian Fisher to also welcome you this evening. Vivian. Good evening and welcome on behalf of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. It is really indeed my pleasure to introduce two stellar um, authors this evening. Um, and so without further ado, I will begin with first, I would like to introduce um, Dr. Lawrence Jackson, who is the author of the award-winning book, Chester B. Himes, A Biography and the Indignant Generation. Um, in 2002, he published Ralph Ellison's Emergence of Genius. Dr. Jackson is also the 2019 Guggenheim Fellowship awardee. He is a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of English and History at John Hopkins University. And he is the, he is the, he's the founder of the Billie Holiday Project for Liberation Arts to create opportunities for enhanced intellectual and artistic relationships between Hopkins and Baltimore City. And we're so pleased because Baltimore is his hometown. So welcome Dr. Jackson. Thank you very much, Ms. Fisher. Thank you. Also this evening, our guest writer is Annette Gordon-Reed, who is no stranger to Baltimore. We've had her several times at the Pratt Library, but it's very, um, her new book um, on the Juneteenth is very timely. But a little bit about Dr. Gordon, Annette Gordon-Reed. She is the Carl M. Loeb University Professor at Harvard. Also, there's another distinguished title, Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History, also at Harvard Law School. She has um, won 16 book prizes, including the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2009 and the National Book Award in 2008. In addition to her numerous articles and reviews, she has a list of honors, including, and the list is, is quite lengthy, but I'll just abbreviate it and just give you a few of the highlights. She received a Dorothy and Lewis B. Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal, um, the National Book Award, the Frederick Douglass Book Award, and the list goes on. In 2019, she was elected as member of the American Philosophical Society. It is my pleasure to, to present to you both Dr. Larry Jackson and Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed. Thank you. Thanks very much, Vivian. Uh, Annette, it's great to, uh, to have you with us tonight. Um, it's so exciting. I uh, wish that we were all live, but I'm sure that the audience is really delighted to get a chance to spend a little bit of time with you. I just wanted to see if we could just have a conversation and maybe you tell us about this new work. Um, but I think that most of us really, uh, especially those of us like from Maryland, my roots are from Virginia, or my uh, grandparents are all born and raised in Virginia. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about uh, Juneteenth, what it means, how it was founded, and why it's important? Okay. Well, I'm very happy to be here, even virtually at the, at the Pratt Library, and to have a conversation with you. I was a great admirer of your book about Chester Himes, a much, uh, I feel, neglected author uh, here in the country, but we could talk about that another time. Uh, I'm a native Texan. I grew up celebrating Juneteenth, so this has been sort of interesting to me over the past a uh, couple of weeks uh, to see what has happened in the la last week actually has happened with the holiday. A Juneteenth commemorates the day that Gordon Granger, United States Army General, came to Galveston from Louisiana where he was stationed to take over the region of Texas for the Union Army, the Army of the United States of America. 
And while he was there, actually, the first thing he does is he issues General Order Number Three, which says that slavery is over in Texas. Now, this is portrayed very often as a situation where uh, enslaved people were being kept in the dark about the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been issued two and a half years before this time period. And this is the slaveholders keeping them, you know, from, no, from this knowledge and they didn't know, but that's not really what happened. And people think that that two year period was a period in which, you know, the wool was being pulled over their eyes and they just had no clue about all of this. But the truth is that Link, uh, uh, Lee had surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia in April of 1865. Lincoln had been assassinated. He'd issued the Emancipation Proclamation in January, a couple of years before then. But the Confederate Army kept fighting. Most people, many, I don't want to say most people, many people think that the war was over when Lee surrendered. That's the Army of Northern Virginia. He surrendered. Uh, the rest of the army, other parts of the army kept fighting. The army of the Trans-Mississippi kept fighting and indeed won the last battle of the Civil War mm. outside of Brownsville. Mm. And even though they won the battle, they knew that the war effort was over and they surrendered at the beginning of June. So that is why Granger goes to Texas to take control of that area. So this is not a matter of enslaved people not knowing about the Emancipation Proclamation or being kept in the dark by anybody. Emancipation came at you know, the point of a sword. It, was, it took force to do it. Just because Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which applied to the states in rebellion, it wasn't like the Confederates looked at it and said, ah, I guess we're just gonna give up. You know, it's, no, they kept fighting. And it was, it was the army was responsible, you know, the army, which included, and I think very importantly, not I think very importantly, everybody knew was very important, the influx of Black men who left plantations and joined the Union effort helped save the Union and end slavery. So that's what this is really about. This is a, the delay was because of the recalcitrance and uh, the refusal of the Confederates to lay down their arms until they absolutely had to. And when they did, that's when Granger comes to, to Galveston. So this is 1865, the very next year, the anniversary of that, Black Texans began to celebrate what was called then Emancipation Day. And they've celebrated it continuously, continually um, ever since, 156 years. In 1876, a group of men in Houston pooled their resources and bought land for the specific purpose of having this celebration. And that became Emancipation Park, which is still there today. And I have been there for Juneteenth. So that's, I mean, this is something that has meant a lot to Texans. They've taken it seriously from the very beginning. And it's kind of interesting now um, and has been for the past decade when I've seen, even longer than that, when I've realized that lots of people people across the country have celebrated it largely because Texans who left Texas took the holiday with them and told people about it and carried it forward. So that's, you know, that's the situation. And that's why I am still don't quite know how to take it all in yet that this is going to be a holiday that the entire nation will be celebrating as a federal holiday. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, uh, the serendipity of the events, the publication of your book. It's like, you know, you're responsible for uh, the federal holiday. So congratulations. No, 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 no. <laughs> Other people have been working on that diligently, Miss Lee, Opal Lee and others. Uh, this is just good timing for me. <laughs> sure. But, um, I think that for those of us in, um, you know, a state like Maryland that uh, goes back to the 1630s and, you know, we think of ourselves, you know, maybe connected to Virginia or the Carolinas and then Frederick Douglass escaping to Pennsylvania and New York, mm-hmm. um, we, we need to know a little bit basic Texas history. So um, how do Black people get to Texas? How many Black people are in Texas, uh, you know, between the creation of the state and the end of the Civil War, what's some of Black Texas lore that we should all know so that we can sort of, you know, tie ourselves to this uh, rich history? Well, I mean, the first person of African descent whose name we know, 
who's in the area of Texas was a man named Estebanico, who is in the area that would become Texas in the 1520s with the Spanish. Hello. And there were other Black people who um, were there with the Spanish around the same time. We just don't know their names. So we kind of cut that off because they speak Spanish. <laughs> I mean, that, that's seen as, and we, we fixate on the British colonies, Maryland and Virginia and those things in the Chesapeake um, as an origin story for, for Africans in the Americas. But it's really a Spanish story. They're there a hundred years before um, 1619. And I want, I start the book talking, I mean, I start a part of the, uh, the, the, uh, my discussion of the history of Texas starts with them because I really want, I think it's important for us to think more globally, larger, more in a, in a you know, a, a more expansive understanding about origin stories for African-Americans and not just the people who speak English. Uh, so they're there, he comes there, he's with Cabeza de Vaca, they end up being enslaved by some indigenous people there and they escape and he's essentially walking across Texas uh, to walking past you know, parts of Mexico over to the Pacific seaboard. And he's, while he's there, he's serving as a translator um, for the indigenous people and the Europeans. He has a talent for language. Cabeza de Vaca's memoirs talk about, about him. Um, so I thought it was important to, it would have been interesting to me as a, I heard about Esteban as a child, but in our classes, but it was just sort of a, sort of in passing, but I, I would like to have had that story more incorporated into our understanding about it. But the history of plantation slavery in Texas really begins in the 1820s when Stephen F. Austin, um, following in the footsteps of his father who died before he could do this, was given the right to bring settlers and to develop land to bring settlers into Texas. And the settlers that he's bringing are people from Georgia and Alabama, and in other words, slave states, slave societies. He be firmly believed that slavery was necessary to the development of, slave, uh, of Texas, that if people came there without it, he says they would be poor for a long time if they didn't have it. He was a little ambivalent because he didn't like the idea of large numbers of black people living among white people, but he, he, it was a, it was a trade-off. It was more important to develop the state. And so he was really supportive of the institution of slavery. The problem is that Mexico wanted the settlers there as you know, a bulwark against the Comanche and the other indigenous people, uh, not indigenous because the Comanches aren't indigenous to Texas, but uh, of Indians. They wanted them as a bulwark against them, but they weren't thrilled with slavery and the institution of slavery. And in fact, they abolished slavery at the end of the 1820s and they give Texas an exception. They make an exception for them, but the, the white Texans are not secure about this. And because they think that any moment they could change their mind. And plus there were other issues, um, sort of federalism. They didn't like the encroachment of um, the federal government sounds familiar, uh, and they end up deciding that they want to break away, which they do. And 1836, we have the formation of the Texas Republic. The Republic, the Constitution of the Republic is open about slavery, open about protecting slavery. It says African-Americans can't be citizens of Texas. It says that um, you know that they if they come free ones who come to the state have to get permission to stay there. Mm. Uh, it's just it's a slaveholders republic. Mm. The, the American Constitution kind of tries to hide it by saying persons held to service. Here mm. it's no holes barred. Mm. So that's the begin that's the origin of slavery uh, in, in Texas. They these are the people who have come west to the, what was a frontier to come West with their enslaved people. And they really want their, they're adamant about this. They want their property rights and don't want them disturbed. And so they leave Mexico uh, with the hope eventually of becoming part of the United States, which they 
they get to do very controversially because free states didn't want another slave state brought into the union, but they make it into the union only to join the Confederacy a couple of decades, you know, almost a couple of decades later. And this brings us to the moment of Juneteenth. So was it then especially significant to have uh, slavery uh, repudiated and to uh, maybe memorialize and to um, transmit the memorialization over space and time that uh, in this place, Texas, finally, um, slavery as it had been most forcefully articulated in the slaveholding places in the continental United States was finally being, you know, formally rejected. Uh, my father served in the U.S. military in the 1950s, and uh, he was born in Danville, Virginia. And I would always ask him, how did you withstand Jim Crow, Dad, in the 1930s and 1940s? And uh, he would always say, well, I don't think I never thought of it as being so bad until I went to Fort Hood. So I have in my own mind, you know, this place of Texas as, is, you know, hey, this is like where it's no holds barred in terms of uh, sometimes the punitive nature of race relations. Is there something especially significant about repudiating the uh, legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in Texas? And maybe you might tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in, is it Conroe or it's Conroe 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 yeah. um, Texas yes well it's interesting my father was stationed at Fort Hood in the 50s too so maybe they knew each other uh they likely knew each other and they're there uh, but um it's yes I think it is significant because the people who were who are at the Freedmen's Bureau in Texas uh noted that it was one of the most difficult assignments that they had uh, the people were, the whites were particularly recalcitrant and uh, adamant. And I think maybe that the history being on the frontier, being uh, also, they had been a republic. Uh, they had not been occupied. They, for, in their view, they had not been defeated. And again, as I mentioned, the last battle they actually won. So for them, it was, uh, it was, it was very tough for them to accept. I'm talking about uh, the whites in, in Texas. So I think it was especially significant that it was, uh, that slavery was ended there. Also that Gordon Granger in his general order says that now the enslaved people, he didn't say enslaved people, but basically says slaves and masters will now occupy a position of absolute equality, mm-hmm. which he didn't really have to say. I mean, he could have just said, uh, slavery's over and, you know, everybody go about your business. But to talk about, to sort of offer a vision of a future, of a future society by talking about equality as an American value, hearkening really back to the Declaration of Independence, uh, all men are created equal. So he dips into that. He also, it makes this uh, order on, on, uh, uh, under the auspices of the Emancipation Proclamation. So he brings Lincoln, sort of like a Lincoln final act into this. And he references by use of the phrase or the, the concept of equality, the Declaration of Independence. And that had to have riled people as well uh, to say, wait a minute, these are people that we had on the bottom rung of society. And you're telling them that now we're all going to be equal. Well, um, that it, it sort of unleashed not just that statement, but just the whole, all of the circumstances unleashed violence, caused whites to unleash violence on blacks, not just in Texas, but all over the South. But in Texas, it was, it was bad. Uh, people talk about bodies in the river, seeing bodies just floating in the river. And uh, one person described a scene of coming upon um, a, a place with almost 30 bodies hanging from trees, men, women, and children, just wanton killing. Now that these people were no longer property, um, you know, people got killed in slavery too, but, uh, but once they lost their value as property, the notion of just shooting people down and being, you know, imposing this kind of wanton violence on them uh, was, was not uncommon. So anywhere where the soldiers were not, people were vulnerable. People tried to, I mean, enslavers um, kept people on plantations. 
uh, not because they didn't know that they couldn't go, but because of, through violence, essentially. They were the ones who had the guns and the weapons. And um, so it was, I mean, that's the thing about Juneteenth. It's, it's a day of celebration because people were happy. There's no question that they were happy that the law, by law, they were no longer going to be property and they could you know, have their children sold from them and their spouses sold from them. But they knew it was going to be a struggle because they knew who they were dealing with. Uh, you, you can't, just as the Emancipation Proclamation didn't automatically make everybody free, um, Journal Order Number Three uh, announced freedom, but it was at the point of it with the soldiers. They had to have soldiers there enforcing this in the Freedmen's Bureau later on. But even then, they didn't have enough people to cover all of the territory. So it was a mixed bag um, for them. Uh, so I was I was also saying maybe tell us a little bit w about what it was like oh, yeah. integrating the school system in uh, Conroe, Texas, okay. Uh, okay. the uh, the freedom of choice plan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes the contemporary history has as much relevance for the celebration of these holidays, you know, sort of commemorating um, mm -hmm. such a significant event as the ending of chattel slavery, but sometimes we need to remember what took place, you know, within our own lifetime. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the book is called On Juneteenth because I talk about what happened on that day, obviously Galveston and all of this, but On Juneteenth to me is on the subject of Juneteenth, which is about the end of slavery and the institution of slavery. So I talk about what happens before, talking about Estebanico and Stephen F. Austin and all of that. And then I talk about what happened afterwards. Um, after uh, Reconstruction ends and the troops are pulled out of the South, 1876, the whole region comes under the control of the so-called redeemers who try to put things back, the social life back to as near to slavery as they could possibly get it. And with Jim Crow, segregated accommodations, segregated schools and the like. And you, we all know what happened. The 20th century, as Du Bois said, was a problem of the color line. And through efforts like, like Du Bois and others, the civil rights movement began with the Niagara movement, the NAACP, and then various efforts to challenge um, Jim Crow, uh, de jure segregation. And we know what happened in 54, Brown declares separate is inherently unequal. And just as there was a reaction after 1865, June 19th, 1865, there was a reaction in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, some, of it would, some of it was violent, but in the area of the schools, what people did was to, what whites did, was to try to get around the, bro the Brown decision. Some people set up private academies and sent their children, but as far as public school went, they tried to come up with plans to circumvent Brown. And one plan they came up with was called a freedom of choice plan. And that sounds great, right? You know, freedom of choice, get to choose. Uh, and that's what was happening in the mid sixties when I was about to go to first grade. And under freedom of choice plans, white parents would pick a white school and black parents would pick black schools. That was the expectation. People would stay in their lane, their traditional lanes and not really choose anything different. But my parents decided to send me to a white school to choose differently. I had gone to Booker T. Washington, which was the black school in our town. It was K through 12. My brothers were there. And indeed, my mother taught English at Booker T. Washington. So they decided to do this different thing. Um, and I guess the, I know that they and the school district and, and I believe the town newspaper, everybody agreed, all the relevant parties agreed that they wouldn't make a big deal about it, that I would just go to school. So, you know, you know, the famous pictures of you know, Ruby Bridges going to school escorted by uh, uh, Marshalls and the Little Rock Nine. Uh, I didn't have that. Um, my father drove me to school and dropped me off and we and I just started school like it was a normal kind of thing even though it wasn't a normal thing uh, my teacher Mrs. Daughtry was wonderful 
Uh, she was probably, it was, she, she couldn't have done a better job of handling this situation. I knew that it was a big deal. I was very aware of the fact that I was doing something that was unusual. Uh, there were uh, periodically administrators or educators would come and stand in the doorway to sort of observe as this was going on, a black child in, in this, this setting. And some of the kids were nice to me and some of them were not nice to me. It was an intense time. My mother said that at one point I broke out in hives. I don't remember that, but they, they think that might've been stress related in some way. But I, it's funny, I guess humans have this way of, I mean, I focus on the fun that I had. I mean, the good things that happened. And I remember some of the bad things, but my predominant feeling of my four years there at Anderson, first through fourth grade, was that I had a good time. I was there by myself at first. And the next year, uh, another family chose to send their, a friend of my family chose to send their daughter there. And then after three years, um, the Supreme Court struck down freedom of choice plans. And so everybody had to change schools. And that uh, created another issue for me because some black people in the town and some children who were the, you know, obviously overhearing their parents were not too happy about that. And I had this weird experience of having people I didn't know who were very hostile to me. I know there were some white people who were hostile to me, but I understood that part of it. Uh, that wasn't surprising to me, but I was surprised when it became clear to me that people were angry at me I think they saw me as a symbol of something that they had lost their school, that somehow I was responsible for that. When in fact, it was black people. Yeah. I'm talking about black people. Right. Um, the, they think that they thought that I had, uh, I was the person who was responsible for taking their school away from them, but I, I wasn't, obviously that was a court decision and they, you know, desegregated the schools. Um, so yeah, it, I, that, situation that lasted for most of my you know time in until I graduated that there were people from high school I mean there were people who remembered that and who did not had a negative attitude about me because of that and there were some people you know who liked the, what I had done so I, I had an experience pretty early on of being what you could call a controversial figure um, that people who I didn't know didn't like me and would express that dislike and I'd, I'd be puzzled what what I didn't know who they were I understood why but uh, that was sort of a strange experience uh, to have as well hmm. uh, you you come from such a um, you know remarkable family I thought it was fascinating that you know your parents are very well educated and such uh, you know incredible professionals against the odds but at the same time you had an older brother who would uh, stick up for you and set things right. Oh yeah, no, well, I mean, that, that's a universal thing. I, he's telling the story about, I, I talked about a, a boy who, who was mad at me about what I'd done and was just sort of punching me. And I didn't want to tell adults because kids never want to tell adults things because you know, they'll just mess it all up. But I told one of my brothers who um, took care of it and the guy never bothered me again. I was um, I was also uh, struck by uh, some of the thoughts that you had towards the the end of the the manuscript, and I, I know that we won't have much time tonight. It would be just marvelous to keep um, keep talking. I, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time for questions. But you you, you know it's a it's a wrestling match. Um, this uh, this question about the, the significance of the holiday, um, the uh, the competing memories that it calls forth. Um, this moment of celebration, also a moment of uh, painful reckoning. And, um, you know, I was thinking about the, the, um, the impact of uh, African-Americans who are enslaved. Um, you know, again, I mentioned the Virginia thing. I think in Virginia, between 1860 and 1865, it's almost 100,000 people who are sold to Texas. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and this thing about, um, you know, uh, the workforce that is settling this land. And of course, that means, you know, sort of 
claiming or reclaiming or just colonizing um, the land that people were already, you know, sort of living on. Um, you know, you sort of have that on the one hand, and then, you know, this, um, these other opportunities for a certain kind of mythological freedom mm-hmm. that gets later wrapped up in the idea of the, the cowboy and, yeah. you know, the other uh, mythical figures in American lore. Um, and you say, you say, love does not require taking an uncritical stance towards the object of one's affections. And then you also, when you're saying that, you also mentioned that, you know, that there's, it's important to have a certain degree of detachment mm-hmm. to be able to take that stance, I guess. But I just wondered if you would maybe say a little bit more about that and mm-hmm. help us figure out some of these problems or some of these, uh, to use James Baldwin's favorite word, a conundrum. Yes, How do, yes. How do we get through this puzzle, um, you know, where we're, we're sort of, uh, dealing with all of these, you know, sort of com- com- competing uh, tensions, and and um, you know, we 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 need we need help work like <laughs> yours that um, that will that will help us to figure things out. Well, I don't know that I've figured it all out, but I, I mean, I do know that what I'm trying to get at in this passage is that there are some people who think, I mean, I'd say some really hard things about Texas in the book and talk about the worst, you know, that in the state, the things that have happened, lynchings, well, slavery, Jim Crow lynchings, burning a man was burned at the stake um, in my hometown on the courthouse square in the, you know, in the 1920s is something that you think out of the medieval times. Um, you even so- talk about a young person uh, being killed in police custody under very, very uh, you know, uh, 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 troubling circumstances in the early 70s, seemingly because of interracial dating. Yeah, well, yes. And this was the person, that, a man, a young a man, he was 17. He was a boy I knew. Uh, he was my brother's, my, my brothers knew him as well. He was in one of their classes, uh, the, you know, the same age. Uh, yeah, a man who was shot <laughs> in courthouse uh, by a white man and who got off. Uh, for murdering him, you know, murder him in front of the judge and jury and all the spectators. I know there's a lot that's bad there. But what I try to say is that because of the experiences that I had in this place with my mother and my father and my brothers and my grandparents and my community, people whom I loved and people who loved me, you know, despite that, the tension that existed between whites and blacks, in my community, in my world as a child, I was happy and I loved them. I had what children need, you know, at, at that, what I needed at that particular moment. And I did, I loved being with them. I loved traveling with them, the land, the look of the land, vistas, scenery, all those things took place in, uh, a, a, under circumstances when, in which I was with people who were everything to me. So I love that experience. That is my Texas. And Texas is not, I don't think that the people who hate people like me and live in Texas own Texas. I mean, it is not their Texas. It's not their Texas. I mean, they have their Texas, but their Texas is not mine. And if I say I can't love the place because of what they do, I am, to me, it suggests to me that they own the place. And much the same way with America, that the people who are, you know, who live judging people on the basis of race, who are hateful towards people and do all the things that, you know, I, I talk about in the book, those are the people, they're the real owners of the country. And we are just visitors <laughs> and we don't really belong there. So, I mean, that's the way I see it. Baldwin also said that, you know, if the American Negro is not an American, there is no America. There are no Americans. And that's, I, I really think that that's the truth. Most people, people of African descent in this country have been here since the 17, their ancestors have been here since the mid 1700s. You know, that's, so it's, we've been here forever, a very, very long period of time. And, you know, we can claim this, this kind of place. So it's not, and we're in a moment now down in Texas where people are trying to, by legislation, prevent people from talking about all of these kinds of things because it makes, you know, white people feel uncomfortable. Uh, But 
you know, we can't, you can't talk about Texas. You can't talk about the Texas Republic without talking about the constitution, which has the provisions that I mentioned before that are, are about race. We didn't just make up race to talk about now. People in the 18th century and the 19th century talked about race all the time. If you want to do the history, you have to confront that. And if we want to know why we are where we are right now, you have to know these things. Who was the yellow rose of Texas? Well, I'm, I'm sure people have heard that song. They always play it at conventions. Anytime a, a woman from Texas comes up, they play the yellow rose of Texas. I was uh, unfamiliar with it. It was news to me. Well, I mean, I'm not going to sing the tune, but if you, if, if you, if you let go to Google and listen to the tune, you, you will, it'll probably recognize it, but uh, it's a story about a story that I'd not, the, I knew the song obviously, but I'd not heard the backdrop, the supposed backdrop of the song until the 1990s when I came home from Texas, came home to Texas with my kids and they were talking about the yellow rose of Texas in relationship to the Alamo. And the story is that the yellow rose of Texas, I should start short up saying, but is a minstrel song. It was about a black woman, about a mixed race woman. There's a yellow, there's a yellow girl in Texas. I'm going down to see no other, you know, that's, those are the lyrics that have been changed now to the yellow rose of Texas. There is a reference in the lyrics to yellow rose of Texas, but you can't sing there's a yellow girl in Texas. I'm going to see now. Um, so it's the Yellow Rose of Texas. And uh, the story is that she, a woman named Emily West, who actually existed, uh, was enlisted by Sam Houston to be a spy for the Texas Republic and to ingratiate herself with Santa Ana, you know, the, the general who killed everybody at the Alamo. So uh, she's the black light-skinned Matahari. Yes, exactly, exactly. A at the behest of Sam, Sam Houston. Now, I, we, ne we never told this story when I was growing up. This is something that's new. And it's interesting because this is, it seems to be an attempt to make an more inclusive story about the battle for the Texas Republic that black people were involved too. But Emily West was in fact taken hostage by the Mexican troops when she was down there. She was actually a New Yorker and she wasn't enslaved. Mm -hmm. um, but the notion that she had some kind of affair or was seduced Santa Ana is there's no evidence of that at all. I mean, the story begins, somebody tells says this in the diary, but it's fascinating to me why that story would be taken up now. And the answer is to make like, you know, black Confederates that the notion of trying to bring black people into a circumstance, a sort of troublesome, you know, a historical circumstance to say, yes, black people were involved in this. They were Texians. They were for the Republic as well. Of course, she wouldn't have been able to live there, but um, you know, so that's who Yellow Rose is. It, it's a song about originally about a black woman, a mixed race woman, I should say, uh, that has now been taken into a, a story about Black involvement in uh, the fight for the Texas Republic. I know that we sort of have, have gone around this one, but I, I, I did wonder, so what, what are your feelings about the, uh, the passage of the, the, the federal law and the, the new holiday? I mean, is it uh, you know, a great triumph. And you, you also mentioned the name of uh, at least one person that I'm not familiar with. I think the name is Opal Lee mm -hmm. as a person who had been a, uh, a, 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 a forerunner or um, a, um, an important steward mm -hmm. of uh, the momentum that, uh, that built the coalition and the consensus for the holiday. Yeah. I, I, I was curious, um, you know, I, would just, I have to say, like, for my own part, um, I was caught completely unaware. I was not anticipating, <laughs> you know, sort of any of the things that have, have, um, have unfolded really over the last 18 months. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, it almost became a holiday last year, but one senator blocked it. Ron Johnson, I believe his name is, he blocked it. And so he came on board this time. I was shocked. I thought that it would become a, a national holiday, a federal holiday, but I thought maybe later on in the year. 
but this what happened last week you know the senate votes unanimously then the house and then i thought the president was overseas well he was overseas but he came back and i guess they wanted to do this before juneteenth so that it could be a holiday on friday i couldn't figure out why they're doing this on because i got an, an email thursday morning saying can you come down to washington for the signing and so i got on a plane and went down there and uh i realized that you know they wanted to be able to give people to start right away making it a, a national holiday and so everybody had the day off on on, on friday but miss lee is a 94 year old texan who has been campaigning for this for a number of years, she told me, you know, well, when I was 89, I decided that I, I wanted to try to, to make this possible. So she's been on this quest uh, to make this a national holiday, working with other people. She's you know, done these sort of walkathons for it and been joined by people, Usher, uh, who was at the White House. I kept looking at him thinking, that looks like Usher. I, I never think anybody is who they are. I was, that looks like, so, and then I realized everybody was sort of crowding around him and talk. So it actually was Usher, but somehow you know, he'd gotten involved in this and with her and other people and, and P Diddy, I think was involved. I mean, so she's enlisted celebrities and other people to try to make this happen. And I was wondering if she was going to be able to make it there to get there in time. Cause this was, it seemed like, you know, a snap judgment, but she made it and the president recognized her and called her up and you know gave her a pen as he signed it and all. So it was, it was a really nice moment. Now that has nothing to do with voting rights and all the other kinds of things that they're fighting about now. But you know, it's, it's a nice thing to have happen and we'll see how it's handled over the years. One of the questions that we have from our uh, virtual audience, uh, what do you think of the formal title National Independence Day? Um, and uh, the, the questioner was asking, um, does it make sense to you and is it trying to hide or, you know, obscure something very specific? Uh, they said they're puzzled by it and would appreciate some insight and perspective on, again, the, the formal title. I think I did hear this National Independence Day. Well, you know, I have no, I have no specific, I have no answer at all as to why they decided to, to call it that. Um, Juneteenth, as I, as I said, was about freedom of people in Texas. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't, is, didn't free everybody, but it, the freedom doesn't really come, independence doesn't really come until, not independence, legal slavery is over uh, when the 13th Amendment is ratified in 1865. I don't, I'm not sure why they did that. I don't know what it's obscuring because I don't think that anybody's actually going to call it that. <laughs> People are going to call it Juneteenth. Uh, I mean, which is one of the reasons it became the holiday because it's a word that people like to say. Um, it's a good brand. It has been made into a brand. So I don't, you know, I don't know that that I don't have a conspiratorial. Uh, I have no idea as to why they decided to do that uh, because, particularly because I know that people aren't going to call it that. They're going to call it Juneteenth. I, I don't know if the person is uh, making a suggestion that there's, you know, some kind of uh, uneasy overlap or conflation between Independence Day and National Independence Day. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was always struck by uh, David Blight's observation that between 1865 and roughly 1898, Independence Day, July 4th, was celebrated exclusively by African-Americans yes. in the South <laughs> yes, because yes. no white Southerners were celebrating the national <laughs> birthday. And it's sort of, it's a fascinating thing, you know, that it's not really until the 20th century that that holiday in the South becomes- It gets taken over. Multi-racial, at least a multiracial- Multiracial side. Because we celebrated both of them. I mean, we celebrated June 19th and, uh, and July 4th, but there was always sometimes July 5th uh, as a sort of ironic commentary on the fact that the ideals of the declaration were not realized. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, Blight, David, David made a very good point with all of that. And it, it sort of points up the ambivalence that many white Southerners have about the national government. And of course, here in Maryland, slavery ended uh, by the uh, rewriting of the Maryland Constitution in November 1864. The
passage, the ratification of the Constitution in November 1864. Mm -hmm. There's a very, very long uh, history of African-Americans having um, watch religious ceremonies from December 31st through January 1st. Mm -hmm. uh, That's not just connected to bringing in the new year, but also to celebrating the end of slavery by way of the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. I am am certainly, I mean, just my response is that I am hopeful that we are able to preserve and uh, maybe emphasize or enhance all of the traditions. Yeah. um, And we don't, we don't lose uh, Mm -hmm. anything um, by the, uh, by the holiday. Well, uh, what I was hoping, and, and I've said this before, is that Juneteenth, I mean, emancipation was a process, as, as we know, it was a military process, it was, you know, in your case, it was law, uh, it was enslaved people leaving plantations, uh, running away, uh, they effectuated uh, emancipation in that fashion, and I hope we celebrate, Juneteenth could be like an umbrella celebration of all of these uh, days of emancipation. I know that there were some people who, I think they celebrate uh, Emancipation Day in Boston, they might in uh, on January 1st too. There are other places in South Carolina, it may be that as well. Uh, the only difficulty there, I mean, it's good to have an umbrella to bring that forward because there are other holidays on January 1st. Um, and, you know, that's the people celebrate. So it, it'd be good to have something that's away from that. So we talk about all of these places. I think Virginia has a day, I think it's April 3rd, where people, or the fall of Richmond, I think that may be it. Uh, I don't, don't go to the bank on that, but I do know they have a day and, and Florida has another day. All of those things should be talked about on, on Juneteenth um, to talk about emancipation as a, as a whole, as a process. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to recognize the, um, the history, especially the complexity of the history of absolutely physical emancipation. Um, someone has asked uh, about violence against Blacks or anti-Black violence, but especially in the border states, so Delaware, Maryland, uh, different parts of Virginia, Kentucky, uh, and of my favorite, I'm writing a book about the uh, Black representations in Western films, uh, Missouri. So uh, do you have anything that you would like to say about that and i and I'm, I'm i'm assuming that they're talking about the same moment that you described in texas uh sort of the 1865 uh you know and maybe through uh the reconstruction mm-hmm. well you know nothing except that it happened i mean eric foner's book reconstruction uh his classic work talks about all of this and has many instances from all over the south uh, where people were this kind of wanton violence that I talked about before was effectuated. Um, someone didn't, and this may have been Virginia, didn't take his hat off or did something that displeased a person and he just shot him. You know, uh, the white person just shot the black person and, and no, no repercussion or anything like that. So I, I have no specific thing to say other than that it, it did happen. And uh, all, all places, it was particularly violent, you know, in, in Texas and in Mississippi and places where there were any places where there were lots, the black population was, was, was large and, and uh, where people in, in Texas, where, as I said, people felt particularly aggrieved because they felt they hadn't lost really. I mean, they had to surrender um, because it had been lost to other places, uh, but it, violence was endemic to that, that period of time. Um, someone has observed that, um, in Tennessee, there's a celebration on August the 8th mm-hmm. that is celebrated as Emancipation Day. So that's a, um, mm-hmm. that's a new one for me, or I didn't know anything about that. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, can be added to the, under the umbrella as well. And there is a, uh, there's a question about your, your you know, information, knowledge, and position um, on uh, African-Americans organized around the issue of reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, the questioner is, you know, sort of thinking that um, there's, there could be greater organization, but um, uh, uh, what's your, what's your uh, position maybe on the likelihood of reparations? And do you think that 
we will be able to um, produce a coherent, maybe a congressional bill um, advocating uh, reparations for enslavement. Mm -hmm. We could probably get a coherent congressional bill. I don't, you know, I can't predict the likelihood of that. It's something that would meet with lots of opposition. I've always thought that it would be better, and this is the lawyer in me uh, and the, the pragmatic part of me, to think about things that have to start with, things that happened in the 20th century, things that were clearly violations of the 14th Amendment, redlining, the government's participation in uh, steering Black people to certain neighborhoods and out of other neighborhoods, which had a cascading effect on education, where people are educated. And there were, there are plenty of things that happened in the 20th century to people who are still alive, who could be plaintiffs, who uh, could you know, make claims for reparations. And I think it, it might be a practical thing to start with that. I know people want to do something about slavery, but to start with violations in the 20th century and maybe get people used to the notion of reparations before we start with slavery, a, the more difficult task because, because of the passage of years, who, who uh, has an injury in fact, um, with this? Uh, how do you divide these things up? These are all questions that we could deal with. What I'm saying is that you typically start with wedges. We didn't start with Brown. You know, there were other, there were other court cases from the 20s chipping away at things all along, and then they come to that. And so for people, I think it's, for my mind, in, the, in my mind, it might be more likely if we started with 20th century, maybe even 21st century things, if we want to bring policing into it, if we could talk about these things uh, as a way of perhaps getting reparations and then work our way back, that seems to me to be a strategy um, that I, I think would, could be employed, usefully employed. Do you see, um, you know, much success or possibility connected to things like the, um, the recent congressional testimony of survivors of the Tulsa mm -hmm. massacre. Yeah. And well, the, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. No, I was going to say, well, you know, there was a court case that didn't go anywhere with that, but the, the utility of that, it, it was not all for naught because they created a record about all of this. That's one of the things that lawsuits do is even if they're ultimately not successful, there's discovery uh, documents are brought out information is, is revealed. Um, so that was a case that it seems to me that should have been an easier one. They had a, not well, easier from my standpoint, but there was the issue of statute of limitations and so forth. But I think those kinds of things, congressional hearings or even lawsuits that call forth, as I said, the production of documents and information can be useful because a lot of this is we just want people, we want a record of this. I mean, we want it known. And one of the great things about the celebration, uh, uh, not the celebration or the commemoration, God knows, not celebration, the commemoration of the 100th anniversary of this is that there were a lot of people who didn't know anything about this at all. And what people should know going down this road is that that kind of thing happened in other parts of the South too. I mean, Tulsa is the most dramatic in a way because you got planes you know, people dropping stuff from planes the 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 notion of black wall street all of that but there are a lot of places where you know uh, people who researchers have gone into a county and seen a number of black people during one census year and then they go back 10 years later and they're almost all gone and if you search around you found out that there was a period when somebody just said you guys got to go the, the famous Forsyth, Georgia story. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's an ebb and flow that is connected to the, uh, the public consciousness about historical events. Um, I'm just, you know, as we were talking about uh, the Tulsa massacre, I was reminded of the filmmaker John Singleton and his film Rosewood from mm -hmm. several decades ago. Yeah. Which also, you know, was, you know, trying to um, offer a suitable memorial for, uh, you know, again, one of these terrible moments in African-American history, but one that takes place historically about the same time as the, um, the Tulsa massacre. 
And I was thinking about the response in the New York Times of the filmmaker and film star, Tom Hanks, who said, oh, my history teachers never taught me any of this. And um, I didn't get around to it, but I will say that I was, I was reminded of the, um, uh, a letter written by an African-American journalist named John Kinlock during the Second World War mm-hmm. to the editor of the, uh, the, uh, the Los Angeles Black newspaper. I think it was the B. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that uh, when he landed on D-Day plus one or plus two, he said, you know, they are erasing our history here and that we had these Black engineers who were the first on the beach and they have absolutely wiped them out of the historical record and they're not allowing us black journalists to follow the troops into the field. So we can't tell you, you know, what's going on or who's doing what. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say that again, because I, you know, I, I know a couple of these stories, but one of our, our questions, and I guess we're sort of close to the end, but our, one of our final questions is, how do we reconcile efforts to repress the truth of American history Um, while other people are demanding greater depth of of the American historical record. And it's sort of like back to the tension I was asking about earlier. What do we do? Well, we continue to write. I mean, the history of slavery, the historiography of slavery, which really is transformed in the 50s. I mean, you know, I, I should say in mainstream, in, in, among white historians, I mean, Du Bois and Woodson and other people were doing, uh, you know, work before then. But in the sort of mainstream, in, in the, in academe, in white academe, um, with black historians and white historians, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, we've just had, it's the crown jewel, I think, of writing of American historiography, the things that have been written about slavery. There are just amazing books being written about race and uh, not just slavery in the past 40 years. And now every year, I'm just, I can't keep up with all of it. People want to know. People want, people want this information. And there are people who are uncomfortable about it. They think that, you know, they're trying to suppress it because they don't want a real discussion about the truth of American history. But I think most, I I encounter people all the time who tell me that they didn't like history when they were in school. And it wasn't until they became adults that they realized how important it was. But if if you're interested, there is stuff out there, just an amazing amount of things. You just type black history, whatever into Google, and you'll get amazing books that come up because there's there's a hunger for it. Uh, they're trying to, at, at, in some places, stop school children, you know, at the level of, of children, maybe to head them off at the pass or whatever, to stop them from knowing about these kinds of things. But I, I think it's ultimately will be a fruitless effort. Uh, there's just too much information and too many people who want to get it out there for it to remain hidden, unless people want to hide from it. If you have any interest at all uh, in it, it's at, it's at everybody's fingertips. I too hope we have really turned the corner on the historical record. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to turn it over to one of my Pratt colleagues, but uh, it's been a joy having a conversation with you. Much mm-hmm. success on your work. Thank you. I look forward to your other work too. <laughs> Unmute. Yes. Wow, what a profound, illuminating conversation. In closing, I really want to thank Dr. Jackson and Dr. Gordon Reed for this really wonderful conversation. Um, it couldn't come at a better time. And I would like to say also, um, on behalf of the Pratt Library and the Reginald Lewis Museum, I want to thank our attendees for attending this really thought-provoking Uh, conversation. Also, there were many books that were mentioned, so please come to your favorite library, Pratt Library, and check out some of these books. We have most of these titles, and if we don't have them, we can get them for you. And also, check out our Compass newsletter, our Facebook page, and our Pratt website for future upcoming uh, programs such as this. This this has been, I mean, I'm I'm a love of history, so this has really been exciting for me to just hear this conversation. 
Uh, and, and, and we look forward, Dr. Jackson, to your forthcoming book coming out to have you as our guest as well. So thank everyone for attending and have a pleasant evening. Thank, thank you. you. Goodbye. Thanks for inviting me. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.